I think it's probably good to start to start the discussion with dispelling some misconceptions that people have. Uh, this is a hot button issue uh, and a terrifying one, and an exhilarating one all at once. Uh, and that's the idea of the afterlife. Now, the reason why it's the reason why it's um, there's misconceptions because while people may debate as to whether or not Jews believe in afterlife or not, and this and that, that's a discussion. But either way, the way it's always presented as the afterlife. So it means like we have life, and this is life, and then there's something that may or may not come afterwards. It's like the after party, right? It's like, but this is life, right? This is central. I would say that that model is imperfect. Uh, because while Jews do believe that this is not the only life we have, we don't present this as being life and what comes afterwards being secondary to it. We actually look at the afterlife as life. And perhaps we could say we're right now in pre-life. Now, the Talmud makes a very interesting comparison of this life as being a gestation to next life. Now, if, if you were to ask, if you could possibly conceive, pardon the pun, of a discussion that you would have with a child in utero, right? That's not really possible, but theoretically. And you would tell the child, okay, what do you imagine life's about? So they'd say, well, life, I'm, I'm in this, you know, really comfortable place where I can move and stretch and it's really wonderful and I get my nourishment and it's fantastic. This is life. And you say, well, what, 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 what happens when you leave this life? Well, then you're dead, right? What happens when you're dead? You're dead. It was, it was fun while it lasted. That's what, that's what they would say because they cannot conceive of something grander or something else or something different or something beyond their existence in the present time. The Talmud compares that to our life here. As if the life that we have here today is merely just a preparation and a prelude to life itself. This is not life and then there was a talk about afterlife. This is the, you know, the, 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 the gestational period where we're developing ourselves for life itself. Now, that's what, it's not a perfect analogy because just like a child in utero, the, what happens to them is very much consequential to what they're going to be like in life. So, for example, the mom is uh, drinking alcohol. Well, that can impair the development of the child. Right? The mom is exposed to toxins or, you know, or is doing hard drugs or all that. That's going to impact the child. So it's not like life for the child right now is inconsequential to what life is going to be when they get to real life. Indeed, everything that happens to them now goes into who they're going to be composed of or what they're going to be composed of, what their situation, what their circumstances are going to be when they actually achieve life. But no one could argue and say that that is what it's all about. Similarly, in Judaism, we say that the life we have today is a preparation. It's a very consequential preparation because the actions that we do today, if we smote the spiritual meth, so to speak, we're going to be severely impaired with regards to life itself. So the actions that we do today 
are impactful and are indeed very consequential. But no one is going to say that this is the only one they have. Now, to be clear, uh, the Talmud makes it abundantly clear that uh, indeed it goes through sources uh, as to the existence of the afterlife, which is called the afterlife, or I think we should probably call it by its correct term, the Olam Haba, which means the next world, not the afterworld, it's a different world, the next one. Uh, but it makes it very clear that that indeed is the goal of life here, is to actually gain entrance to Olam Haba. That's the focus, that's the goal. Uh, Jews have a head start in this because Jews at birth already have a portion of the world to come. They could lose it if they do certain things or they have certain sins or they develop certain heretical beliefs. Uh, Non-Jews as well can be granted entrance to Olam Haba as well if they're righteous. But the goal of a human here in this gestational world is to make it healthy and whole to Lama Ba. Uh, now, as to the existence of Lama Ba from Jewish sources, the Talmud goes and brings about 25 different sources. It's, uh, it's, it's an overwhelming amount of sources from the Torah itself that clearly point to the fact that the Torah believes in Lama Ba. Now, importantly, the Torah does not speak about it overtly. Uh, there's a reason for that. Every time the Torah talks about future predictions, projections, forecasting the future, it's always about life here. And there's a reason for that. And the reason is because the Torah does not want to take any shortcuts to greatness. We'll talk about how to get shortcuts in a little bit. There are some shortcuts. Um, but the shortcuts are kind of really hard, so it, it, all, it, it all balances out. And you'll see what I mean in a little bit. But there's no shortcuts to greatness. If you want to become great, you're going to have to work. Clear and simple. Now, if I were to tell you, if you don't do the mitzvahs, if you don't observe the Shabbos, if you don't put on your tefillin every day, if you don't keep kosher, you, when you die, are going to put in the fire of a thousand suns. Right? Well, that's a shortcut to greatness. Because then you're like, oh, geez, I don't want to do that. I don't want to burn. Oh, okay, fine, I'll do it just, just to cover all bases, right? Uh, and that's, that's a way a lot of other religions operate. Because if you want to gain mass traction, you, want to, you don't want to have great individual greatness. You just want to have huge numbers of adherents that aren't really believing in something uh, you know, that's very developed. But it's a very primitive belief. But you want to gain large numbers of, numbers of adherents. That's what you would do. You compel them, either by the damnation of the afterlife or by the sword of present life, like other religions have, uh, have, have used. But that's an easy way to get someone to adopt your platform. The Torah doesn't want easy ways. The Torah wants us to, uh, to achieve greatness on our own. Therefore, the Torah does not try to freak us out, like with every page talking about Olam Abba, even though it is hinted. You know, throughout the Torah, it's ubiquitous, and indeed the Talmud goes on, goes and demonstrates again and again that it's only uh, it's only uh, it, you know the, the only way certain verses are understood is if Allah abides this. Now, that being said, I want to point out that it's logical as well, because if you believe in God, once that is established, you already have to believe in Allah Baba, because there can be no purpose here. You know, you look around the world. And we don't see purpose. Thus, it's only possible to believe, or better yet, if you already believe that God exists, then by definition you believe that there is purpose, and thus there must be some purpose 
and we don't see it here, there must be some other arena where that purpose is uh, visible or is displayed. So that's the idea of Alamabah. Now, we look at other sources that make it clear that that's the goal of um, life. For example, uh, Lutzato, Ramosha Lutzato, in his seminal work, Mesilat Sharim, Way of the Just, he starts up the first line, what's the goal of life? Get Alamabah. This is what, that book from the 1700s or something? Well, that's one of the books. There's The Way of God, which he talks about as well, but the Lamasiyah Tashirim is another one of his books, which is, condition, which is considered the foundational book of Musar, because he outlines that, or that difficult path to greatness that we talked this was, about. This was written in the 1700s? Yes, right? yes, yes. But Italian. he calls it, he, that's right, the Italian moved to Israel at the age of 20. Um, but he calls it from, uh, from various Torah sources, it's abundantly clear. Now, I think there has been a disservice done uh, to some Jews by telling them we don't believe in Lama Ba. Um, and the, it, I, there is this idea that we don't talk about it, we don't talk about Kehanim, we do believe, we don't believe in hell. People are very hesitant to talk about it. Uh, if you look at the sources, the sources that predate any one of the uh, uh, squabbles that um, that Jew, Jewish communities today engage in, it's abundantly clear and it's, it's, it's incontrovertible that Judaism believes in the afterlife or what we call Alamaba. It's abundantly clear, indeed, that's the purpose. So to say that that is not true or whatever, we don't believe that, we're not talking about that, I think is a mistake. Uh, now, so what, what, what's the relationship between this world and Olam Haba? So it's interesting because this world, like I said, is consequential because the activities that you do today here determine what you're going to look like in Olam Haba. That being said, this world is inconsequential because we don't look at this world for reward and punishment. We don't see reward and punishment in this world. And thus, the way these two worlds interrelate is that the activities you do today that you can only do here, those are accounted for in Olam Abba. And when you get to Olam Abba, you cannot do any more mitzvahs or any sins. Like you, your capacity to perform and produce is, uh, is curtailed. This world is a world of production. That world is a world of consumption. That's why one mitzvah in this world is so precious because once you're out of this world, once you're dead, you can't do any more mitzvahs. This is the only opportunity you got. Uh, and conversely, with regards to reward and punishment, reward and punishment is only in Alam Abba. This world is no reward and punishment. Thus, the question of why bad things happen to good people, right? the core of the answer is because, yeah, bad things happen to good people, but that's not in the arena where the reward and punishment is amplified like it is in Alam Abba. Obviously, that's a separate discussion, but we could talk about that some of the time. We have spoken about it here in the past as well. But that's the core of the answer. The core of the answer is, is that we tend to look at this as life. Thus, we want to see all accounts settled here. And we don't see all accounts settled here. Is it fair that some guy could kill six million Jews in the world's worst genocide and get away with a bullet shot to the head? Is that fair? Is that a settlement of all accounts? Of course not. No one's, no one's going to say that. that how is that fair? Well, the answer is no, there is no, there is no fairness in this world. Right? Ultimately, the fairness exists with the balance of these two worlds. Yeah, I had an interesting, a few 
few years back when I was still working, uh, we had an emergency room physician from Egypt, Muslim. We had, he, he, come to, he starts talking to you about Judaism and he says, how come you don't believe in a heaven and hell? I said, well, you know, and I started thinking, I said, geez, I have to look at it, it's kind of vague. We really don't talk much about it, you know, it's kind of vague. So he made such a big thing about it. So I looked it up and it is vague. Yes. You know, well, it's not vague, but people are hesitant to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. But hell, they don't. We don't talk about it because it's very, it's a very, it's a very un, unpleasant and misunderstood topic. I think we should have a talk, a talk about it. Why not? Like this is what we do, right? We challenge, yeah. we tackle the challenging subjects uh, and really address them from the bottom. I was up. reading the, the Seventh Day Adventists. They believe in heaven, and then they kill off all the rest. They call it abolitionism. Or I know, but like that was a that. That that's Yes, this that, that'll be the reward. Now that being said, so just to, once you brought this up to clarify, it is possible to receive reward for your your mitzvahs here and punishment for your sins here. And like we said, it it is possible, but that's not the ultimate. It's not where the reward and sin is amplified. Remember, I said that, right? So you don't want to cash in on your mitzvahs here and get paid in pesos when you could cash out in kilos of gold, right? That's right. <laughs> Thank you, John. <laughs> uh, so, that, you know, so yes, that, that, that's why, for example, if you look at um, Jacob, right? Jacob was terrified that he exhausted all his reward already. So he was he was worried when he was gonna have this encounter with, with with his brother with with Asaph that he's now gonna be vulnerable because he has no more because so many good things happened to him even though so many you know, bad things happened to him as well but so many good things happened to him that he had just exhausted it all and that's a common uh, refrain that uh, the the um, righteous have is that they're wary of, of 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 using up all their merits in this world either way so all I'm about is the goal. We can only get to it. The path that we used to get that is this world. And more specifically, the behavior, the activities that we do here, the mitzvahs, they are the ones that enable us to access Lamaba. That's what the sources say. What I want to look at very, uh, very critically is the three different methods that the mitzvahs bring us to Lamaba. Because what I've found in my analysis is that uh, the sources look, look at three different avenues towards getting a Lamaba. And Before you start go ahead. That, what happens if you don't do the mitzvah? What happens if you are Hitler? <laughs> yeah, so, so we're, we're going to focus now on the positive side, but clearly, like we said, all accounts are settled in Lamaba. And they're settled, and there's nothing left over. It means is, is that everything is made whole. So even if you're a sinner, 
but you do mitzvahs, everything is accounted for. And even if you're a righteous person and you sin, everything's accounted for. Where those things are accounted for right, depends on your level of piety. Because the righteous people want to have their sins accounted for here. And the wicked people end up getting their mitzvahs, their reward accounted for here. Uh, but everything is accounted for. And the Almighty has his ways to, uh, to ensure that. And there are, there are a lot of sources about that. We're going to look at kind of the positive side. How do we get Lama Ba via our etchings here? And we find before us three paths. So we are familiar with the idea, we've spoken about this prior, that the mitzvahs correspond to the human body. We're told that there's 248 positive mitzvahs. When I say positive mitzvah, it means a mitzvah do X, Y, or Z, right? Sit in a sukkah, eat matzah, right? Etc. And then there's the uh, negative mitzvah, which means refrain, withhold from doing X, Y, or Z, right? Don't eat non-kosher, for example. And uh, 248 positive mitzvahs corresponding to 248 limbs that a person has. And 365 negative mitzvahs corresponding to 365 sinews, muscles, that keep the limbs intact. Now, obviously, from the fact that we're making a connection between the body and the mitzvahs, it's apparent that there's this uh, completion, so to speak, that we gain, just like we have all 248 limbs, a healthy human body has all 248 limbs, a healthy spiritual entity has all 248 mitzvahs. And similarly, if you do all the mitzvahs, then you complete like a replica of yourself, an avatar of yourself, wherein there's now a physical, there's a physical you, and now you created a spiritual you. And what happens when you die? So your physical 248 limbs and 365 sinews gets put in the ground and starts decomposing. So what's left of you? What are you? You are the spiritual reality that you created, the spiritual body, even though that's, you know, uh, that's apocryphal, right? That doesn't make any sense. Uh, But uh, the spiritual body, so to speak, that you created is who you are. So you go to Olam it's a spiritual world. Well, what do you look like? You look like what you created. Thus, by performing all the mitzvahs, you are granted access as a spiritual human to Olam You do them all. This is the old mitzvah path. Path number one, the easiest path. Maybe it takes a few years to get there. But you do all the mitzvahs. You fulfill them all perfectly. Well, you fulfill them all. We'll get to perfectly in a second. You fulfill them all. And voila, you are now, in, on top of being merely a physical entity, you created a spiritual entity, thus in a spiritual world, you are complete. What happens if, unfortunately, you uh, ignore one mitzvah? Some people like to say, listen, Rabbi, there's certain mitzvahs that resonate with me. This one I really like. Other ones, less so much. It's equivalent to someone to say, geez, I really like, like these fingers. You know, but this one, ah, do I use it so much? Can I live without it? Yeah, of course you could. Yeah. But would you give it up? We have to look at the mitzvahs as each one of them being important. And that's what the Talmud tells us, or the Mishnah tells us, that we have to pursue and chase and run after even a minor mitzvah. 
just like, you know, you don't say, well, my um, left toe, my left uh, ringed pinky toe, whatever it's called, that one, meh, not so important, right? You don't walk without it, maybe it's a little uncomfortable, not so important. Kneecaps, is it so important? Could you live without kneecaps? It's the end of the world. What do you mean? They have all the technology now. Still, we're very happy with our body as fully functioning, and we feel sad for people that don't have what we have. And we wouldn't want to give that up for almost anything. Do you need both eyes? You can see well without eyes. Yeah, it's a little harder, right? Of course, you know, we have someone in our neighborhood who, who lost the vision of one of his eyes in, a, in an accident. He sees fine. But, but do we want to put ourselves through that? Of course not. And that's why every mitzvah is important. You know, we wouldn't, uh, just the thought of taking the human body and removing one part of it is unthinkable to us. Like if I were to tell you, you know, if I were to just ask you to imagine or just to try to give me, give, give me your understanding as to which one of them is more painful. Is it more painful to pry off a fingernail or to gouge out one of your eyes or to have one arm amputated? I know this is a little gory. But just, it's uncomfortable, right? Just that question was uncomfortable. Because to us, we cringe at the thought of taking any part of our body and removing it. Because it's all one entity. It's not like, you know, we don't look at our finger, you know, only in the context of the function that it gives us. It's part of who we are. We have to realize that we're creating in our life a spiritual replica of our body. And thus, every mitzvah is precious. It's all part of this collective that's us. And that, by the way, is going to last a lot longer than our spiritual body. Because every every one of us knows here, this is a fact, that within 100 years, we'll say 110 years from now, maybe I can live to 140, maybe. I think I'm the youngest youngest person in the room here. I'm 29. So maybe, yeah. Within 110 years, we're all dead. Everyone agrees. So our, our body's shelf life is 110 years. What's our soul body's shelf life? It's forever. Because the soul cannot be extinguished. It's a soul. It doesn't, it doesn't have this constraint of 70, 80, 100, 140 years. What about when that soul reincarnates? Reincarnates is you're just kicking the can down the road. Right, you're just going through this another 120 years. But either way, the point is the soul is still the whole point of reincarnation is that okay, you got to you have one more shot to try to get to where you need to get to. But either way, the the end goal is the same. Your soul is going to be around forever, and your body, whether or not you have the same body or you're reusing or you're you're, you're being granted another body, it doesn't, it doesn't mean it means it's also important to know. Like the Almighty made our body in in you know in the manner where our souls. I'm sorry, our cells, not our souls, our cells uh, regenerate. So we have cells that get old and rusty and they get replaced with new healthy cells. So our body is actually not the same body we've had since childhood. It's been replaced several times over. So, But we think of our body as our body hasn't changed, right? But the reality is on a molecular level, it's an entirely different body. Entirely different. And by the way, what part of our body stays the same? The brain. Our brain cells don't regenerate. Which I think is the Almighty's way of saying, your brain is the part of you that's most spiritual. 
Thus, that's not going to change. Everything else is, you can filter them out. It's like, yeah, we look at our spine and our ribs and our fingers, they're the same fingers we've had. No, they're actually not. If you break down cell by cell, they're entirely new. You know, they have, you, they're 10 years old, max. But we think, we, we're used to thinking in body-centric terms. Thus, we think of our body as being, it's been around since as long as I've been around. No, it hasn't. It's brand new. So we, we're kind of going through this organic reincarnation all the time. Because a body is a body is a body. And that doesn't really matter. But our brain, which is most closely linked to our soul, that's there and that's what we got and that's permanent. So reincarnation, like I said, it, 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 it just makes the 70 years into 140, 180 years. But either way, it's still, there's a shelf life. So if, that, if I'm following your logic then, we are never going to really get to the afterlife. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying reincarnation is the unfortunate. I don't want to talk about it too much because it's a little bit hard to source. But reincarnation, all it does is gives you, it, it extends the life, so to speak, of your physical iteration. Yeah. yeah but, but you're going to reincarnate a zillion times. Who says that? Are you suggesting we only incarnate one time? Reincarnation in Judaism... Like I said, the sources are scant, but what the sources do say is that it's not that it's, it's not just perpetual reincarnation like the Hindus have. It's just ideally you want to finish it all in your first round, your first go round. If there's something, some, something, some patches you need to fill, you may get another round. I didn't appreciate that there was only two rounds. Or two, or three, or five. But the point is, is that you got you might get an additional round to fix what you need to do. But the goal is not to be here as a physical body. The goal is the spiritual, and thus, if we complete it on the first round, then, we're, then, we're, then, then that's, that would be ideal. But the... the but, well, it, the, sorry, the sources are stamped, but uh, that is a, a clear... Um, clearly what emerges from the sources, that, this idea. Um, but either way, um, so the all-mitzvahs path is taking the Almighty's instructions, fulfilling them over here, via their fulfillment, we create a spiritual entity of ourselves that mirrors our body, but it's not physical, of course, it's spiritual. And thus, when our physical side is put aside, is interred, well, what what goes on to the next world? Our spiritual entity, our spiritual reality, and thus, if we have it, we're great. If not, you know, we're, we're lacking. Now, there are some organs or limbs that you cannot live without them. And some, well, you could live. It might be uncomfortable living. But if someone, God forbid, has their arm amputated, so they lost a whole bunch of limbs, they could still live. So if we, let's say, ignore some mitzvahs, so it depends which mitzvahs are we ignoring. If we're ignoring mitzvahs that relate to our heart or our brain, well, then it's, you know, we can't, we can't gain access to any life in Alamaba because we're missing some of the engines that keep us alive, some of the limbs that give us life. As opposed to if we ignore mitzvahs that are less important, corresponding to less important aspects of our spiritual body, well, you still be alive, but you might be crippled or lame or missing or lacking. And that's unfortunate, but you could still have some sort of life in Lamaba. And that's why we have some mitzvahs, for example, that we're told that if someone 
ignores those mitzvahs. For example, circumcision, right? Circumcision is a mitzvah that labels us as a Jew. So the Talmud says, Talmud says it's the, the verse says, it's not a, the Talmud explains, but the verse says if someone doesn't fulfill that, they get cut off from the Jewish people, which means they lose the capacity to have continual existence beyond the physical life as a Jew. What it means is, is that they lose a mitzvah that corresponds to a spiritual limb that you need to live. Thus, if you don't have that mitzvah, you don't have that limb, that spiritual limb, and thus you cannot live. As opposed to other mitzvahs, they're still super important because we don't want to think of ourselves as just a collection of limbs that can be summarily removed at will, uh, but we could still have some sort of life. But that's why we don't, we don't say to say, oh, let's focus just on the big things. No, we've got to focus on, on them all. And of course, that's a process that may take uh, years. Of course, that's a lifelong pursuit. Go ahead. Is the avatar that we're creating, is it the same as the soul? Or is that a separate? Are we talking about a separate? Well, well it's, it's, I would say it's giving the soul life or giving it the capacity to exist beyond, beyond here. Um, it's very hard to talk about the soul in, in these terms. That's why I said it's, it's, it's like an analogy. Um, but... Um, so, it's, so I'm saying it's hard to quantify it in, in, in physical terms, but that's the idea. The idea is we have a soul already here, so uh, we're creating kind of a, a, a soulful body, which is the way I like to say it, but it, it doesn't, obviously that doesn't work um, because a soul can have a body, but it's a soulful uh, existence, spiritual limbs that give you existence in the Lomaba. That's the way I like to say so it. In, in the next life. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's, that's unfortunate, right? And, yeah, because... And this is, by the way, this, to, to me, what this does to us is it really raises the value we have to give to mitzvahs. Because we think of mitzvahs as nice things to do. It's like a nice thing. Wouldn't that be nice to have a mitzvah? It's the Almighty's given us instructions, and it's so wonderful. But, you know, what if some, somebody else may take priority? But you see the, the Jewish obsession with mitzvahs and dedication that we have to mitzvahs. And that's really because every single mitzvah is so precious because it's integral to who we are as a spiritual entity. And thus we don't have the liberty to say some mitzvahs are important and some mitzvahs are not so important. Everyone is so vital and so crucial and so necessary, yet unfortunately we tend to overlook them and say, well, you know, it's not so important. Which is, which is, which is dangerous because you know, that's what's going to be Lama Ba. Or Lama Ba, we are the mitzvahs that we fulfilled. So what happens to the seven billion people who well, don't follow these? Well, the, that's, that, that, you know, that's uh, the nice thing about our religion is that we have this pluralistic idea where it's not, you don't have to be Jewish to be good. So if they fulfill their seven mitzvahs, the seven Noahide mitzvahs, they can have a portion of to come as well. So They're they good people. That's right, but we accept that we, the Jewish nation accepted upon themselves to become great. Thus, we have a much higher floor that we need to uh, eclipse. What about those people who have died that cannot complete mitzvahs that need to be performed in the land or without the temple? Or Good question. So, uh, 
What about uh, the agricultural laws in Israel? What about the mitzvah, the sacrificial laws? So the Talmud tells us that uh, if someone studies the laws of an ola, it's as if they fulfilled the mitzvah of an ola. What's an ola? An ola is a sacrifice. So the idea is, is there's ways to fill in those gaps in our spiritual avatar by studying the Torah that correlates to those to those mitzvahs. So I gave a talk called Filling in Our Spiritual Avatar, which I, I think it's sort of called something like that, but which I talk about this subject at length, where the Torah study is so important because it's, it enables us to do the things that we couldn't have done otherwise. There's mitzvahs that are not possible for us to fulfill. So are those spiritual limbs beyond us? Of course not. Because the Torah enables us to fill in all those gaps. Torah study. Which is why, one of the reasons why I said in the talk, why the Jews are, are so tenacious in Torah study, even with regards to mitzvahs they cannot fulfill. And I would say, in this context, those mitzvahs, the Torah study correlating to those mitzvahs are even more important because besides for the mitzvah of Torah study itself, they help us in our other pursuits as well. But good question. Okay, so that's, uh, so now we're a little bit depressed because, oh gosh, we've got to do all the mitzvahs. We have to do all the mitzvahs. And there's so many mitzvahs. And where do we start? And it's a whole, it's many, multi-year project. And we're doomed. Uh, is, Women have no. The mitzvahs are the, the mitzvahs are for everyone. Um, some mitzvahs we cannot fulfill. Some mitzvahs, for example, men cannot fulfill. And women only women can fulfill. Uh, but men and women are both equally um, demanded uh, from that they must uh, achieve greatness. And the way they do it is by fulfilling Torah to the degree that they're able to uh, to to study Torah, to teach Torah to their children. To you know, to support a uh, a wholesome Jewish living, and that's how uh, both men and women achieve their greatness by doing everything that's demanded from them. Okay, so the Talmud I think gives us a little bit of a, of an opening. Um, the Talmud tells us a few stories, very dramatic stories, in the um, in the book of Avodah Zarah. I'll go through them real quickly because. There's a, a common theme in these stories. It's interesting. These stories, the punchline of the stories. I'll give you. A, I'll give you a spoiler alert. The punchline of these stories is three individuals that were able to achieve everything that we just outlined in one hour, and they are compared to the people who spent years and years and years filling in the spiritual avatar, making sure they have all the mitzvahs in place, these people, they got it in an hour. What are the stories? So story number one is uh, there was a Caesar, one of the Roman Caesars, who hated the Jews. So the Talmud doesn't tell us which one it was, but if you learn history of the Jewish people at the time, it could have been almost any one of them. So he hated the Jews, and he's sitting and talking to his advisors, how do we get rid of the Jews? And he tells them, well, if you had a wart on your foot, would you cut it off or would you suffer your whole life? So they tell him, you've got to cut it off. He's like, oh, the Jewish people, they're bothering me, the thorn in my side, I'm just going to get rid of them. Everyone agrees, besides for one guy. Katia Bar Shalom gets up and says, wait a minute, 
what's going to happen? First of all, he brings some verse. You can't, you can't actually extinguish the Jewish people. We know we're an eternal nation. You can't get rid of us, number one. Number two, he says, what are they, what's, your gonna be, what's going to be your legacy? You're going to be the Roman emperor who destroyed his own people, who killed his own subjects, who murdered his own citizens. You can't do that. So everyone says, okay, we can't kill the Jews. But the emperor says to Katir Bar Shalom, he says, yeah, you spoke valiant for the Jews, but you spoke up, you were chutzpahdik to the emperor, and thus we're going to execute you. And they lead him out to execution, and everyone's watching, and someone announces, one of the Roman matrons from the, from the seats, from the, uh, uh, you know, from the, from the crowd, they say, oh, you're going to go be killed for the Jewish people, but you didn't pay your tax. So she's insinuating, well, you're, not, you're a non-Jew, and thus you gave up your life for the Jewish people, but you're not even part of the Jewish people. So what a waste. You didn't pay your tax. That's what she said. So, um, so in, as he's being led to execution, he takes some sort of, uh, of device. It's not clear what kind of device he takes. And he circumcises himself. And he says, see, now I paid my tax. And they take him, and they they're execute him, and as he's being executed, he announces, I want all my possessions to go to Rabbi Kiva, who was obviously alive at the time, and his friends. And as he was, he was executed, and there was a batkol, a batkol is a very low level of prophecy. The batkol announces, Katia bar shalom, mezumon l'chaya olam haba. Katia bar shalom, this individual, is ushered into olam haba. And when Rebbe, Rabbi Judah the prince, who was going to be the future leader of the Jewish people, when he heard the story, he started to cry, and he said, some people acquire their world in one hour, and some people acquire the world over multiple years. That's story number one. Story number two, also a very dramatic story, is about a fellow by the name of Eliezer ben Durdai. Eliezer ben Durdai was a connoisseur of prostitutes. He had an insatiable lust. And he, every prostitute in the land, he patronized. And he heard there was this one prostitute who's all the way at the edge of the world, who charges a, a hefty sum, and he says, oh, I'm going to go there, and he travels, and he has to go through seven rivers, and finally he gets there, and he, you know, he meets the prostitute, and after they're done, um, there's a little bit of a bizarre episode, where um, she, uh, she has a, uh, an emission of sorts. And she tells him, she gives him musr. She tells him, just like that's not going back to its source, you, Eliezer ben Dudai, you're not going back to your source. And you know you hit rock bottom when a prostitute starts giving you reprimandations. So he gets all awakened, like, what am I doing with my life? What am I living for? What's my purpose? And he starts praying, and he starts to see very interesting what happens to him. Eventually, he just breaks down, and he, he repents, and he's so filled with remorse that he actually dies. And 
when he dies, the same thing happens. There's this bat call, this very low-level prophecy that announces Rabbi Eliezer ben Dudoy is welcomed, is ushered into Lamaba, and of course, uh, Rebbe, Rabbi Judah the Prince, when he hears the story, same thing, he starts crying. Some people have to spend their whole life to achieve their world, and some people achieve the world in an hour. That's story number two. And the last story, a very similar story. Uh, it's told of Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion, also from that era. He was a victim of the Roman Shmad. The Shmad was the effort of the Romans to destroy Jewish leadership by banning Torah and banning mitzvahs. So they said, you can't study Torah, and he was still teaching Torah, so was teaching Torah, and the Romans came and they captured him while he was in the middle of teaching. He was teaching from a Torah scroll. They grab him, they seize him, and they seize the Torah scroll. And they bring him outside, and they're going to make a public display of this execution of this great venerated sage. They take him, they wrap him up in the Torah scroll, the actual Torah scroll, and they light it on fire. Obviously, Romans were brutal in ways that are barbaric and unimaginable. So, and now to augment his suffering, they actually take a ball of wool, they dunk it in water, and they place it on his heart so he shouldn't expire. And it's a very, very interesting discussion of what's happening here. For example, his daughter is there, and she's, she's obviously watching her father being tortured and killed in this most horrific way. And she tells him, I can't believe I'm seeing you like this. It's so disastrous. And he tells her like this, just an amazing line what he tells her. He says, if I was being burned myself, I would say, okay, who knows what's going to be with me. But now that I'm being burned with a Torah scroll, I know the Almighty is not going to be silent and allow his Torah to be defamed in such an egregious manner. And I know that once he is going to come and try to exact reparations for the Torah's shame, he'll already take care of me as well. Interesting. That his students there, the students are watching, obviously, can you imagine an experience like this? Un- unbelievable. And the students are, are telling him, and they ask him, what do you see? Which is an interesting question. It's like, you have all the questions to ask, right? But a student is someone who's always trying to study, always trying to learn. What's the lesson? What do you see here? And he tells him these words that are just very emotional, but also very emblematic of the Jewish response to tragedy. He tells him, I see that the parchment is being burned, but the letters of the Torah scroll are flying up to heaven. But he's telling them, I see the Torah is being burned, but the core content of the Torah is inexhaustible. You, you can't destroy the Jewish soul, the Jewish spirit, the Torah itself. Yeah, you could burn the, 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 the parchment, so to speak, of the Torah, but the Torah itself, right, that's eternal. Because every letter has meaning. Every letter has meaning, but, but, but the Torah itself, the, the, the spiritual reality of the Torah, is, is, it cannot be destroyed. Fine. Another question they asked him is that they say to him, uh, why don't you just open up your mouth to expedite your, your death? So he tells them also, very interesting, he tells them, 
the Almighty gave me the soul. If he wants to take it, let him come take it. I'm not going to expedite it. Very interesting. So all these things are happening, and the Roman executioner is there as well. And he's inspired by everything that the rabbi is saying. And he asks the rabbi a question. He says, if I expedite your execution, will you guarantee me a portion of the world to come? So he tells him yes. Quickly, he raises the fire. He pulls off the wall. Immediately, Rabbi Chalim Shadim passes away. And not only that, the executioner jumps into the fire as well, and he dies. And after that happened, once again, we get the batkol, this low-level prophecy that announces Rabbi Hanida ben Tradion, the great rabbi, and the Kaltzantanuri, which is the executioner, both of them are ushered in the world, into the world to come. And like the previous two episodes, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the prince, when he hears the story, starts crying, and he says, some people have to spend their whole lives, many, many years, trying to achieve Olam Abba, and some people get it in one hour. These are the stories. And this illuminates this idea that there is a shortcut. It doesn't have to be a grind day after day, year after year to get a Lama Ba, building it limb by limb, brick by brick. Rather, you could just jump all in and you have a Lama Ba in one hour. And you notice that Rebbe, Rebbe Judah the Prince, he starts crying. And he says, some people work so hard to achieve this over multiple years, and some people achieve the same thing in one hour. And I think the idea is like this. The idea is that when we do a mitzvah, we're consecrating our limb, so to speak, to God. And thus, we achieve a spiritual limb that corresponds to the mitzvah. And thus, after many years of doing many mitzvahs, we could actually complete this avatar of our spiritual reality. But in each one of these three stories, the hero of the story didn't go limb by limb, brick by brick, and building who they are spiritually. Instead, they just jumped in all at once. They dedicated the entirety of their lives to God. And you notice all three episodes, the hero died. Because what he did is he gave up his life for God. It wasn't like he gave up one limb at a time. He did it all at once. And thus there's no way for him to do it without dying. So the spiritual shortcut is also a little bit of a, of a, of, of a task or something to ask for us because this is, the idea is to give up everything to God instead of giving up a little, little bit at a time. Instead of just giving up your free life. Of course, of course. Uh, and that's why, by the way, in Jewish history, the great heroes are the ones that give up lives for God. And that's why you know, there's this idea that we have to be ready for opportunities to dedicate not just a little bit of ourselves to God, but everything. Um, and I want to make this a little bit easier. I, I feel like I made, I made your life harder so far. Let's make it a little bit easier. Relatively. <laughs> So there's a story here with uh, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein uh, is an example, to me an example, if you just met this person 
or if you just studied his books, or if you just read his life story, you'd be convinced that Torah is divine. You don't need to have any very fancy polemics to discover that Torah is divine, because you see someone that doesn't play by the rules, so to speak. Any human fallacy that we're used to seeing by everyone, any human drawbacks, the bad midos that are commonplace, he had none of them. Someone who was just kindness, just dedication to mission, zero pursuit of honor, someone who spent his whole life studying Torah. It's unbelievable. Like You see how the Torah can take someone who was born like we all are, with shortcomings, and just purifying. Like, it's alchemy. It's taking something common and turning it into gold. That's what the Torah is. And you just look at the Torah giants, the Torah greats, and see, and the, and the closer you get to them, you, the more you see how perfect they made themselves. It's usually the opposite. Usually, the, you know, if you actually met a celebrity, it's sometimes very disappointing. Because the way they're presented and the way they actually behave is vastly di- different. Yeah. You met him, ooh, he's such a bad guy. Ugh, like you want to be, be friends. Like it's, it's disappointing because your hero is now someone that you look down upon. With Torah giants, the, pe- the closer you get to know them, the more you discover about their great character and the tremendous midas and their selflessness and the dedication to mission. So this is Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, the hero of the next story, is someone who is like that. So there's a story with him. So he, he's, uh, in the 20th century, arguably the, the greatest halachic authority of the 20th century. Uh, he's someone who, it, it's, 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 you read the stories about him and it's, it sounds superlatives, right? It sounds, it, it's just unbelievable. He would study, for example, this is just an example, on every Shabbos he would study the book of Shabbos, the Talmud tractate of Shabbos, every Shabbos. Now, what does that mean? It's 156 pages. 156 pages of Talmud. If we try to study the book of us together as a group, try to study the book of Shabbos, it would take us probably 10 years. He did it every Shabbos. Unbelievable. The whole book. The whole book, yeah. He just never stopped studying. He, he slept, but you know, he was just so dedicated. His, 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 his um, responsa, where he writes... Uh, a Torah response on, on every question in the world. He's able to bring s- dozens of sources from all across the Talmud, both Talmuds, knows a thousand years of, 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 uh, of, of, of Jewish uh, judicial ide- ideas and positions by heart. Unbelievable stuff. Now, he once wrote a halachic opinion, and someone, a Torah scholar of much minor pedigree, wrote a response to it that not only argued with him, which is okay, but belittled him, which is not okay. Someone who was unquestionably the greatest Torah scholar of his time, you have to have some modicum of respect for him. You could argue with the Torah, that's fair game. Fine, so this guy, that, that's what he did. Okay. Not everyone's going to be someone who's going to behave the way they should. A few months later, Rabbi Feinstein gets a knock on his door. And who's there? That same guy who embarrassed him a few months prior. 
So everyone in the house assumed that he came to apologize. Right? If you, God forbid, you were to embarrass the, the God Ladar, the greatest man of the generation, the first thing you would do, you would go there and, and apologize and, and, and you know, have regret and go there. Right? Fine. That's what everyone assumes. He comes in and he says, Oh, Rabbi Feinstein, I wrote a new book. And it's, 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 it's traditional. When you write a new halachic book, you get a letter of recommendation from the Godadar, from the greatest of the generation, the authorities. So I wonder if you could write me a letter. Can you imagine the incredulity of the people? This guy who previously had spoken negatively about Ramosha, he's coming now to ask for a hastama, ask for a letter of recommendation, for an approbation. People don't believe their eyes. And Rabbi Feinstein pulls out his letterhead and starts writing for the guy. and writes him, he's such a wonderful guy, and a Torah scholar, and has fear of heaven. The people can't believe it. What's going on? He gives the letter, he doesn't apologize, and he leaves. So the students asked him, what's going on over here? So Rafaizen tells him like this. He tells him, the Gemara tells us, and he quotes our Gemaras, it's possible to achieve Olam Abba in one hour. I thought, perhaps this was my opportunity to do that. I, every fiber of my being, my own personal feelings, What's justified is telling me to tell the guy, get lost. That's what's right. But I have an opportunity to overcome every bit of resistance and do something that's wrong. But do something which is such an act of dedication that maybe I can achieve, maybe I can forgive the guy and forgive the the evil that he did and just do something just because maybe this is a spiritual opportunity. Did he read it first? Well, he read it. I'm sure he read parts of it. He read parts of it. That's what they do. He, when he, whenever Rabbi Feinstein would give an approbation, he would say, listen, I'm not giving approbation to every single idea that's written here because I haven't read. But this guy is a good guy. And he's a great scholar. And I've read some pieces and I've liked what I've read. And that's, what, that, that, that's all, the, all of his operations. He would do that. that. That's the tradition also. And to me, this really opens up the door to a new idea. And that is that in life, we're going to have opportunities to achieve spiritual greatness in ways that are not common. Someone does something wrong to you. And, and you're justified. You're right. You're actually right. And that person's wrong. And you feel like you, you take the moral high ground, right? I'm right. They're wrong. Let them apologize to me. What happens if you, say, you go over to that person and say, you know what, I, I apologize for what I did. I was wrong and I shouldn't have done it. And your, your heart's aching. How could I say that? That's not true. But you know what? What's going to happen now? You're going to bring, that person is going to say, well, I, I, was, I wasn't so right myself, right? And I really appreciate you coming to say, well, apologize. And... Without, you know, now you'll be, you'll be friends and peace and friendship will ensue. You have an opportunity to jump the runs of the ladder of greatness in a way that's uncommon. You could achieve your world, so to speak. I don't know if it's your whole world, it's part of your world, but you could do a lot. It's a spiritual opportunity that doesn't come around all the time. It's a once, perhaps in a lifetime, perhaps once in a generation, perhaps once in a decade, you get an opportunity like that 
to do something great, and you have to be ready to seize it. A couple of weeks ago, there was a commencement address. Robert Kraft, the owner of the Patriots, he spoke at Yeshiva University. Yeshiva University is a yeshiva and a university morphed together. So Robert Kraft, he grew up observant, and he's telling all these stories about his dad who took him to shul and what they studied. But in his address, he says, a very interesting idea, he says, when he was, uh, when the Patriots, the football team, they were up for sale, so he wanted to buy it. The team was being mismanaged, and he was a local New England businessman, he was a season ticket holder, he wanted to buy it. He said that the team was worth about $112 million. And he said he was willing to go up to 115, maybe 120. 122 was his max. And the owner said, I'm selling it for $172 million, not a penny less. And he said like this. He said that I went to business school and there are some things, some opportunities that don't come up in business school and there are once in life opportunities, and you have to just follow your gut and just do it and not think, not think about it. Because if you do the numbers, it was a bad deal. But sometimes in life, there's opportunities that are there, and they're uncommon, and you're not used to it, and you're not ready for it. You have to seize it. That's what he said in the business perspective. I don't think it's a good business perspective. Sometimes you have to just go for it. But I think we could take that and learn a spiritual component to that as well. Sometimes there are going to be spiritual opportunities that are uncommon, that you don't learn about it in your Jewish studies. It's not like one that you're ready for, but it's an opportunity to achieve a lot very fast and very dramatically. And I think that Rabbi Feinstein is telling us that this idea of achieving your whole world in one hour, it's possible in smaller doses as well. It doesn't mean you have to give up your life. It means that there are opportunities in life where you're going to have, to, where you're you're going to be presented with a chance to do something out of this world, to overcome what you're feeling, and to really seize that opportunity. I have an example, which is, you know, someone comes to you and tells you, uh, "I have this kid. You know, they're not doing so well in school. They're dabbling with things that they shouldn't be dabbling with. Could you help them find a job?" So off the top of your head, you're like, well, I can't hire him. I don't need anyone. Maybe I'll text a friend of mine and see if they need someone. But if this was your child, you'd be up all night, right, worrying about them. And who knows, if you get this kid back on track, what's going to be with them? Is it possible that they're at a critical juncture in their lives that they could go either way? They could be a productive human being, dare I say, a productive Jew who has a nice family, who is a contributor to the community, or they could just go down a path where they're just unproductive humans. And maybe this is a critical juncture, and you, working really hard to find this guy a job and to mentor them, can change their lives. That's an opportunity. And we think of it, oh, what a nuisance. Oh, i got to call people. Oh, it's a nuisance, right? But you, right now, perhaps have an opportunity to change the world, or certainly this child's world, will you seize that opportunity or not? Are you primed? Are you ready to jump at this chance to do something great?
my, uh, my grandfather of blessed memory, the original Rabbi Wolby, he's the one who messed up my Google res- results because when you search Rabbi Wolby, you find him. <laughs> so he, uh, he, you read about him, I would advise you to read about him, which, you know, but he was a tremendous uh, Torah scholar, of course. He founded a yeshiv, many yeshivas. Um, he has a very remarkable life story, but uh, there's one particular episode in his life not very well known, but he really did this, and I'll tell you what happened. So he was in, during the war, during World War II, he was in, in Sweden, in Stockholm. He managed to get there. It was a miracle how he ended up there, because he was in Poland, and he was a German national, so he was how he stood out of Poland. He ended up in, in safety in uh, in neutral Sweden. Now, when he was there, he was indispensable towards a lot of the efforts to help Jews in war-torn Europe, for example. He managed to procure passports, hundreds of passports, for yeshiva students, and hundreds of visas uh, that allowed many, many of them to escape the inferno that was Europe. So that's, that, that's one story, other stories as well. But either way, the war was over, and my grandfather it read in a newspaper that there was trains of refugees, of displaced people, that was arriving in Sweden. And he said, maybe these, maybe these are Jews, who knows? Maybe, we could, maybe there's some people here that need help. So he said, I'm going to go see what's going on. He went to the refugee camp. Turns out that the Swedish government was having a problem. The problem was that there was a, uh, a mismatch in the amount of eligible young men and women. There were more men than there were women. So they figured that they're going to allow some young Jewish girls under the guise of being helpful, of being humanitarianistic, and they're going to bring them into Sweden. These are refugees, and then they'll get acculturated, and then they'll help us with our... They'll intermarry, and they'll be gone to the, from the Jewish people. And they only allowed women. That's why they only allowed, So they allowed 20,000 Jewish women to come to, to Sweden. And so my grandfather gets to this camp, and he sees all these Jewish girls. But, but these are Jewish girls that went through four or five years of trauma, of, of, of camps, of starvation camps, of work camps. And he says, oh my gosh, what do we do? He's like, you know, just, obviously it's very emotional to see all this pain and suffering. He's trying to talk, to see what's going on. So he, uh, in the course of his, his day there, he, he hears a bell. The ringing a bell. What's, what's the bell? Lunchtime. Lunchtime, okay, he brought his lunch as well. So he takes out his sandwich that he prepared, and he's like, he's looking for something. So the girls ask him, what are you looking for? He's like, I'm looking for a place to wash my hands. So like the, you know, the girls are taken back a little bit. And then he goes and he washes his hands and he makes a bracha and he turns around and he sees all the girls crying. These were great Jewish girls from great Jewish families that just were brought back to life before the tragedy that destroyed their lives. And they all start crying. And they see this rabbi with a big beard who's washing his hands, who's making a blessing, and they start saying, oh gosh, and they all start crying. And they say, Tati, Tati, they remember their, their father? 
And my grandfather said he, he himself started crying. Like, it's so emotional. And they're here in Sweden. What's going to be with these girls? That, that's what happens. He's, he's going back, and he's, he's going back to, to Stockholm, and he's trying to figure out what to do. And then on the train, he's like, the only solution here is to open up a school for these girls. And he said he was inspired to try to do something about it. He says, the second he was inspired, he got off the train, and he went to the train stop. He sent a telegraph back to Sweden, back to Stockholm, to gather all the people of the community. We have to have a meeting tonight to discuss this problem. He gets back to Stockholm to have a meeting. At the meeting, they decide the only, only solution is to try to, help, to try to open a school for these girls. How do you open a school in Sweden? What are you going to do? Yeah, the funds are very, very uh, in short supply. So he says, uh, we have to do what we can. And they told him, if you get us a building to have a stool, we'll help fund the rest of the operation. So they send a bunch of letters to the Swedish Ministry of the Interior. And he knew this was, he's like, this is all for naught. What's going to, what are they going to say, give us a, a school, a building for the, for, for a Jewish school in Stockholm? What are you, nuts? You go, we have to do what we can. He writes a letter, explains the situation. Can you give us a building? Shockingly, he gets back the response, how many buildings do you need? We'll start with one. And right then and there, they founded a school in a little island right next to Stockholm, a place called Lidingo. Say that again. Lidingo. It's a, it's a, it was a school. And they had hundreds of Jewish girls come to the school to, 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 to reintroduce them to their faith, bring them back to Judaism. And indeed, those women, many of those women went on to very um, successful lives, most of them in Israel, some in the United States, uh, where they each built a beautiful family, and there's probably right now, I would say, tens of thousands of Jewish descendants that wouldn't have been if not for the efforts of my grandfather. How many stayed in Sweden? Well, I'm, I'm saying there was thousands of girls. Who knows what happened to them? I'm sure that, you know, there's actually a book written, if you want to read about this, this wonderful, inspiring story of the girls of, of Lidingo, L-I-D-I-N-G-O. Oh, it didn't happen. Well, some of them did, of course, yeah, but... So, so that's the story. And to me, uh, this really is, it demonstrates how, like, okay, we have problems. There's a problem. There's 20,000 girls here. What's going to be with them? And, you know, I think, we look at my grandfather and his heroism, you know, he's someone who said, I'm going to try, do I know, will my efforts be successful? Who knows? Maybe Yes. Maybe no, but I'm going to try to do my best to, to try to do, to, to at least give an effort to try to be successful, try to, to, to try to do something about this. 200. What does it say, 200? 200. 200, 200 girls? Yeah, so that, that's what I got to for. Yeah. I actually have a picture here. My grandfather would, uh, he would. You know, even one would be good, but you know. There's a picture of it. My grandfather oh, is... You see the picture? Uh, my grandfather is there. He's teaching. He would come in once a week to teach because they, they had their own teachers there. But he started the school, so he would teach once a week. 
So here's a picture from teaching there. The school, the clothing, the food, the medical Everything, 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 everything. Actually, incidentally, my grandmother was one of the teachers in the school. That's how my grandparents met. So uh, I, we could safely say that uh, I'm a product of uh, this heroism as well. No, she was one from one, one from one of the most illustrious families of uh, pre-war uh, European, um, I guess, Red Jewish um, aristocracy, if you will. Uh, you know, she her father was head of one of the great yeshivas in, in in all of Europe, but like many of her peers, she was in the war, and she even said, like she wrote this in her book, she wrote a book about this. She even said that she. Throughout the years, she forgot basic prayers, like how to say basic prayers. And she said the only thing that gave her comfort was when she, when she heard of an, a great yeshiva student who also, throughout the years of torture and abuse, forgot basic prayers. But it's, it's unbelievable, you know? It's, it's, what was, the, the Jewish people were, were torn to shreds. There was, and, and they're survivors. But were they survivors in name only? Because... Their, their life was forever altered. And there were people that made it their, their business to try to, to try to help these Jews and save these Jews and bring them back to the fold. What's interesting is that he did not let time get away from him. So much of the time will say, you know, I'm going to get to that. I'm guilty of saying, I'm going to get to that. But to call a meeting that night... Well, and, he, and he even said, like, he's like, when he was inspired, he got off the train right then. I'm going to try to do whatever I can right now as soon as, as soon as I can to not let the inspiration dissipate. And we know there are people during the war that, are, that were, didn't stop for a second to try to help people. Those are the people that saw this opportunity, this, 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 to get it all in one second, to get it all in, in, in one hour, one act of heroism like, the, like that could really cement your legacy. Of course, we don't stop cementing our legacy. We try to create a grander legacy uh, as well. The school continued for a couple of years, but once the state of Israel was founded, everyone just went to Israel. There's this interim period after the war uh, where immigration was still very hard to come by. Uh, the, the British white paper was still in effect, very, very minimal. My grandfather actually got to Israel before the war, before, before the independence. How he got to Israel is another, also another great story. Um, he... tell you guys a story once we were here. So my grandmother came from a very, very illustrious family. My grandfather came from the opposite. His family was from Berlin. Berlin was very, a very assimilated community. Um, he ended up in yeshiva in Poland, uh, but still he was a no-namer. And when him and my grandmother decided they wanted to get married, the people who knew my grandmother's family, they're like, what's going to be like this you know, this prized jewel of the Jewish people is going to marry some Swedish rabbi? What's going to be? So they quickly found a way to get her to Israel <laughs> to sneak her away. And my grandfather said he decided that he's not, going to try to, he's not going to try to get engaged before then. If the Almighty wants it to happen, it'll happen. If not, not. So uh, my grandmother got to Israel and she was talking to some of the people there who tried to usher her away. And they realized that my grandfather was really someone special. And they said, okay, well, let's get him over here as well. How are you going to get him over here? You've got to convince the British to allow him to come. So what they did was like this. They told the British 
after the war, there's a big problem because many Jewish families were separated. And thus you have many women who don't know if their husband's alive or not. And if their husband's alive, they can't get remarried, of course. And if her husband's dead, of course, they can get remarried. So there's a lot of issues you have to resolve. And Rabbi Wolby, my grandfather, he was in Sweden. He was involved with a lot of these issues. He knew a lot of people. Let's bring him here so he can help us trying to uh, help as many women as possible to find out if their husband is dead and they can remarry or not and then try to connect those dots. That was the argument made that the British bought it. And he came to Israel in 1946. Uh, or 47, I don't know exactly when he came, and they got married, and my dad was born in 1953. She's a Brooklyn lady. Yes, yes, there was a book. Very dramatic. She was one of the, I think she's one of the students. Um, either way, I, I think this is an idea that we have to try to harbor and inculcate in ourselves. In life, there's going to be opportunities to do a lot very fast. Usually, it's a grind. <clears throat> Mitzvahs are hard. We cannot neglect any mitzvah, because every mitzvah is important, just like every limb is important. But we have to be ready to seize an otherworldly opportunity if it is presented to us. It's not going to be easy. But, when, but if we're aware, we're ready to seize it, just like Robert Kraft says, sometimes there'll be business opportunities that don't come and you can't learn about them prior, don't come often, you can't learn about them prior, and you have to just jump in with both feet. Um, these stories from the Talmud, these stories um, from people that we know or we knew, uh, demonstrate to us that it's, 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 yeah, maybe it's not quite saving hundreds of girls. Maybe it's not quite helping someone in a way that, who know, we cannot telegraph how it's going to come, but we're going to all have opportunities to do that. Maybe it's forgiving someone that did something wrong to you. And you're right, and they're wrong. You're right. But to say that, to apologize to them, this is something I think that's maybe more common. To apologize to them and to make amends and to really say, I regret what I did, even though you know you're right, but were, but were you completely right? Is there, a little bit of, is there a little bit of blame to be passed around? Probably. And do that and let's see what happens. See if we could mend bridges. Who knows how many divorces could be avoided if people had this, had this attitude of, I'm going to apologize even when I'm right, or mostly right. But when you do that, you bring peace, you bring love back to the Jewish people, you help mend uh, relationships, and that is what the Almighty wants of us. And that is an opportunity to jump the runs. And I would say that that's a <clears throat> another path towards achieving Lama Ba, wherein we're able to do something that demands every limb of ours to be dedicated to God. Did you know your grandfather? Yes. He died in 2005. I was 18. I was close to him. Um, What did he die of? He was old. The (laughs) Almighty wanted his soul back. So once once you get this passport to the... Ola Baba, yes. Yeah, well, every Jew is born with a golden ticket. Some people have a, are born with a silver spoon, we're born with a golden ticket. Uh, that's because by dint of who we are and what we stand for, what, what our mission is, we 
are people that are dedicating our lives towards God. That's what it means to be a Jew. So we're, we're already there. We can undo that if we so choose. An example being, the Ramam enumerates 24 sins that make someone lose their portion of the world to come. One of them is when someone does a circumcision reversal surgery. And that is because the circumcision represents the Jewish mission towards changing the world. When someone says, I don't want that, okay, you're opting out, okay, so then you have to earn it on your own. Thus, your identity alone cannot guarantee you that golden ticket. So if a child dies, that child has his golden ticket. Yes. He has not had a chance to... Yes, absolutely. The Gemara says that a child, even a child that dies, is a, is a miscarriage. Even a miscarriage. A child dies uh, in utero or um, at three months or whatever, even that child has a portion will to come. I yeah. Yes. That's right, which gives a little bit of meaning to suffering to know that, 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 not, that even that's not in vain. Also, the child that's born with deformities, unfortunately, that still, that child has a portion of the Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. He's here, he's here now as he is. Of course, of course, of course. That's why every, every life is precious. Because the physical iteration of ourselves could be imperfect, but that does not infringe upon our spirituality that can be perfect as well. Okay, so we have these two paths. We have path number one, let's do all the mitzvahs fastidiously and let's achieve perfection just like uh, we have this, um, uh, you know, we have this connection to every part of our physical body. Let's try to not neglect every part of our, of our spiritual body as well. Do mitzvahs perfectly. You do all of them perfectly. You're guaranteed a portion will to come. Good. We have this other method wherein we do one mitzvah or one act of dedication that envelops our entirety of our existence and we achieve that same thing in one hour because we dedicate our whole lives all at once, not brick by brick, indeed all in one instance. Is there another path? So the Talmud tells us, very interesting statement of the Talmud that may sound indeed contradictory to some things that we're, all, we're told elsewhere in the Talmud. And that is as follows. Rabbi Hanina says, Rabbi Omer, the Almighty sought to benefit the Jewish people, therefore he increased for them Torah and mitzvahs. We have so, many, so much Torah, so much mitzvahs, that's because the Almighty loves us. Now, we know that a mitzvah is a responsibility as well as being an opportunity. So more mitzvahs, while it means more opportunities, it also means more responsibilities, more opportunities for failure as well. So which one is it? So Talmud tells us over here that, well, more mitzvahs is more opportunities. But why is that all beneficial for, for us? Why? They might have to benefit the Jewish people. Therefore, give us a lot of mitzvahs. Well, it's a benefit, but it's also a drawback because now there's more opportunities for failure. So there's a very interesting Rambam here. The Rambam tells us on the commentary in this Mishnah. Very interesting idea. It is a fundamental principle of our faith that when a person does one of the 613 mitzvahs properly and does it with absolutely no external intentions, rather for its sake and out of love of God, he will merit through it to the eternal life. 
Torah Baba. What he's telling us is like this. Mitzvahs, there's, you can do a lot of mitzvahs. There's the quantitative aspect of the mitzvahs. And then there's the qualitative mitzvah, aspect of the mitzvahs as well. It's possible to do a mitzvah and say, well, I'm going to donate a lot of money to the synagogue, but then they'll put a big name, the Walby Center. Right? And that's also nice. Or even they'll put the name, but everyone's like, hey, hey, buddy, thanks. You know, it's really nice. And like, you walk around and everyone sees your contribution. And then you can do a mitzvah with no one knowing about it. And you're not getting anything out of it. You're doing it just for God. And you deliberately try to cover it up. Can you imagine doing a mitzvah like that? And we feel an urge to tell people about it. You know, you know hey, you see that thing? I, I helped, you know. Someone told me recently, he's like, uh, I told him, we spoke about a, this Sunday school. He's like, you don't pay for it? You're looking at him. Right? Which is a, we feel an urge to try to gain recognition for our mitzvahs. But what happens when you do a mitzvah and you, you don't let anyone know about it? No one knows about it. It's anonymous. And you're doing it just because you love the Almighty. You want to do what's right. That's a mitzvah that's lacking nothing. It's done perfectly. When you do such a mitzvah, says the Rambam, you gain access to Lama One mitzvah done what's called lishma perfectly. Thus, says Rechonim Akashia, the Almighty wanted to benefit us. Therefore, give us so many mitzvahs. Because there's so many mitzvahs, and therefore, invariably, over the course of our lives, hopefully we'll do at least one of those mitzvahs perfectly. We have hundreds of opportunities to do mitzvahs every day. Let's do one of them perfectly, or at least one of them perfectly, but there's so many of them, that's a benefit to us, because hopefully we'll do at least one of those perfectly. And by that, we'll get a Lama Ba. So here we have 248 mitzvahs, positive. 365 mitzvahs, negative. Doing them all, we achieve perfection, we're in a Lama Ba. We have this other idea of dedicating the entirety of our lives to God, doing something that demands every fiber of our existence, Olam Abba. Now we have another opportunity. Not to do them all, to do one, once, and do it perfectly. Now, to be clear, quick disclaimer. If you actually look at the wording of these two uh, sources, it's clear that when someone does all the mitzvahs and they actually build that spiritual avatar of themselves, then they're what's called a ben olam haba. Then they are, they are a citizen of olam haba. They're a citizen of the spiritual world. As opposed to when someone does one mitzvah perfectly, they have a portion of the world to come, which means that they're there, but they're, they, you know, they got in a, in a loophole, or maybe their status there is different. But at least you got there, which is a tremendous achievement. But it wouldn't be as great as the other ways. But one mitzvah, doing it properly, doing it without any other uh, ulterior motives, gains you something that you cannot possibly achieve any other way. Now, the way I like to explain this is as follows. If you remember, we spoke about like an hour and a half ago, the idea of getting reward for your mitzvahs in this world versus the next. 
if someone is a wicked person, they do loads and loads of sins, but they also sprinkle in a few mitzvahs as well. What happens to those few mitzvahs they sprinkle in? Obviously, they're very minor compared to the volume, the aggregate of their behavior of sins. But those have to be accounted for. Remember, the, the Almighty accounts for everything. So you have a balance sheet. Well, the Almighty has the balance sheet. We don't keep track, right? Um, but they might keep track of everything. So those mitzvahs, they can gain reward for those mitzvahs in this world. Now, why is it fair that two people do a mitzvah and one person gets reward here and one, one person gets reward in a lama doesn't seem fair. Well, the answer is, is that there's self-selection. So if you're a righteous person, you're living your life for a grander purpose. You're living not just for this pre, pre-life stuff. You want to live for the, for the real existence, for a lama Well, okay, you're prioritizing a lama so you are prioritizing that location, that venue, for your reward. So you get your reward. You're asking for reward, Allah Maba. Sure, the Almighty, uh, the Almighty acquiesces. Well, someone who prioritizes this world and only lives for this world and deprioritizes Allah Maba, so he's saying he wants his reward over here. So the Almighty capitulates and gives him his reward over here. The point is, is that we self-select where we, where we want our reward and punishment. In fact, the Talmud goes to say that the righteous people select their punishment in this world. So ironically, punishment for the righteous in this world is beneficial for them, which as crazy as that sounds. But either way, how is it possible to give imperfect worldly reward for a mitzvah? A mitzvah is a spiritual deed. How is it possible to pay someone for a spiritual deed in passing currency, so to speak? Someone gets rewarded in this world. How long does that last? Maybe 100 years, 120 years? That's the maximum. You did a mitzvah. How is it possible to be paid in this? The answer is, the reason why it's possible to give imperfect reward for a mitzvah is because the mitzvah itself was also imperfect. You do a mitzvah imperfectly, thus it's possible to be rewarded for that mitzvah also imperfectly. Thus, it's possible to be rewarded for your mitzvah in this world. When someone does a mitzvah perfectly, it's lacking nothing. It's a totally spiritual deed. A totally spiritual deed must be recompensed in a totally spiritual world. Thus, if you do a mitzvah, one, one mitzvah lishma, perfectly, there's no other way for this to play out other than you get a portion of what to come. There's no other way to do it. And I think the lesson from this is, is that we have to be attuned not just to the, uh, you know, the volume of mitzvahs, how mitzvahs to do and do them, but to also try to find a way to do mitzvahs to raise our sensitivity to doing a mitzvah perfectly. To focus on ridding ourselves of any ulterior purposes for the mitzvah as well. To deliberately try to conceal the mitzvah. You know how hard that is? Because we have to rework our, 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 our compass, so to speak, of what we're trying to achieve in life. We love when people say, hey, good job, buddy. Oh, oh wow, this guy is so righteous. Whew. What a wonderful guy. What a 
What an asset to the community. That's what we're used to trying to strive to get. And now we're being told, try to deliberately conceal it, and that way you do it for its spiritual reasons, and thus it cannot be fulfilled, it cannot be rewarded for in a physical world. If it's an entirely spiritual activity, it can only be fulfilled, be, the account be settled in an entirely spiritual, uh, spiritualistic uh, realm. Like virtue is its own reward. Well, w- no. We don't, we don't look at virtue as being its, its own reward because then you could do all the misses in the world and actually it just, you're just, like we said, kicking the, car, the, the, the can down the road. Um, the virtue is manifested in something beyond that. Now, I, to be clear, I, 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 I don't want to talk about how that works because it might actually work. Like you said, if you do a mitzvah, you create that spiritual counterpart that is in itself its reward. So you are kind of right, but the way it's pre- presented is a little bit different. Right? You do a mitzvah. You create a spiritual, so to speak, limb. That is who you are for Lama Ba. So virtue is indeed its own reward because you're creating that reality that's going to give you vitality for Lama Ba. But to say that virtue itself is its own reward and that is uh, limited to the virtue itself is... is so I'm saying you're right and, and the, this idea is correct, but the way it's presented is, is, is incorrect. The way it's presented is like, okay, that itself is reward? No, well, then, then you have no reward. But that in itself creates the reality, which is the reward, is, is true. So it's a little bit of, a, of, a, of, of, of how you present it. The semantics are important. If I do a, a mitzvah, and I want to keep it secret, I want to do it just for the sake of heaven, I want to do it to have a place in the world to come. Yes. Have I negated it because that is my motive for doing it? Can I even have that as a motive? So the Ramam tells us... That's a bit a little tricky, right? So the Ramam tells us, so this is a big question. The Ramam, the Ramam tells us that um, that too would be an ulterior motive. Um, but if you, it's not so clear from the sources because is having a spiritual motive not spiritual? So he, sa- he says yes. I, you don't negate it. We don't negate anything, but it does curtail it a little bit. It brings it down a level. It brings it down a level. That being said, I think that if we're ever going to strive to doing a mitzvah totally altruistically, only for God, and not even thinking about the reward, let's at least start with just thinking about spiritual reward, and then we'll get to there when we get to there. Is there anything that doesn't have a motive? Anything that we yes, do that it's hard for us to imagine that. But it is possible. In fact, there's a great story about the going to Vilna. It's a great story. Uh, he, every year, the community in Vilna would acquire for him the best, most pristine esrog, etrog for the holiday of Sukkot. And there was one year where those esrogs were hard to come by, and there was only one guy in town that had a perfect esrog. And the community leaders came to him and said, listen, we have a tradition to give the Golden of Vilna, to give him the most beautiful esrog. Do you mind relinquishing your esrog and giving it to him? So he said like this. He told the messenger, he says, listen, I am willing to give my esrog to the Golden of Vilna, to the great rabbi. 
but on condition that he accedes, he relinquishes his olam that he gets for this mitzvah to me. I'll give it to him, but he gives me the reward. Puzzled by this, they go back to the rabbi and they tell him, this is what the guy said. Right? Can you imagine? He wants to hijack the rabbi's reward. And the Gona Vilna jumps out of the seat. I'm so excited. Tell him yes, tell him yes. Finally, I could do a mitzvah, and I'm guaranteed I'm doing it just lishma. Just for its sake. We're not quite there yet. Uh, let's try to start. Well, but it's a, a good question. Itself, right. Let's, let, let, if we keep our motives spiritual, we're, we're good from where we're holding. Either way, in conclusion, I think there are a lot of lessons here. I think lesson number one is the importance of every mitzvah to not cast aside as unimportant even the most minor of mitzvahs. We have to pursue even the most minor mitzvahs as intensely as we pursue the, uh, the more important mitzvahs or the, the relatively more important mitzvah. Just like we don't say, oh, oh, my toe, who needs my toe? What do you mean? You know how good they make these prosthetic limbs today? Yes. No one says that. We value every part of who we are. The mitzvahs create who we are in a spiritual sense. Uh, the idea of a spiritual opportunity that comes once in a lifetime, like Robert Kraft told us, sometimes you're presented with an opportunity that you cannot get tomorrow. And it's once in a decade, once in a generation, maybe even once in a lifetime. Seize it. Be ready to do that, even though it may mean a lot of self-determination and dedication. When you were talking about that earlier, I thought of the story of Queen Esther, where that opportunity came. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. And, and that's what Mordechai tells her. Who knows? This is your opportunity. This is what. This is. It all comes to this. And are you going to do it? The Jewish people will survive. Yeah, but you won't. Exactly. You're going to. That's right. And lastly, let us try to focus on trying to do mitzvahs, our individual mitzvahs, to do them with a high degree of purity and dedication to mission. Because by doing that, we shed it of its worldly, earthly elements. And by doing that, hopefully, we can achieve a portion of what to come. I thank you all and look forward to next time. This was a lot of fun. I'm happy we selected this subject. It was wonderful. It was great. I just thought something. Sometimes you might do the mitzvah for your own intent to help somebody else or whatever, but then other people see you do it. But your goal wasn't to have other people see you. So it's the same It's It's interesting that we find stories of the great of the great leaders and the great heroes of Jewish people that deliberately try to conceal uh, their their mitzvahs, I mean, you might which some we're not used to doing. But you could give money or food yeah. or something to somebody that needs it, but you're not saying you're well. You're just doing it for the sake of that person. Yeah. On the other hand, if someone sees it, so what? You giving food or something to somebody else, and that's okay. That's okay. But you did it for your own personal. That's okay. Love mitzvah or wanting mm-hmm. to help, mm-hmm. so it's okay. Yeah, it's okay. Anything you do good is going to